So, Rebecca, you're back after your trip, and I want to talk about it. But first, I thought we would introduce the podcast and also talk about and respond to some listener emails that I've specifically um, curated just for you. All right, I'm ready. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Yeah, that's me. That's my cue. I'm not quite with it yet, people. Uh, hi, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a board-certified art therapist uh, with a private practice in Seattle, Washington. And this year, I will have been to five countries outside of the country that I live in. Yeah, I can't wait to hear about it because they are... Since you left, I have been doing a little bit of very minor research on some of the things that you enlightened me to before you left. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious to see what you what you experienced. So this first email is from patron Jessica. She writes, Soon I'll be starting my studies in the Couples and Family Therapy Program at Seattle University, and I cannot be more excited. That being said, I am not planning on having any children. Hmm. I would like to get married one day, but I know deep down that starting a family and motherhood is not for me. Mm-hmm. My question is, how common is it for a marriage and family therapist to not have a family or a marriage? Will I be taken seriously as a marriage and family therapist without kids? Will it affect my credibility as a therapist? Does it matter to clients? I am also fairly young, so will that have an impact on my career also? What are your thoughts, Rebecca? Well, I actually knew somebody that was considered an expert in adoption who had no children and had never adopted, obviously, if she has. <laughs> and I was always shocked by that. So you can be considered an expert in this field having not done these things yourself. I mean, there's so much research out there. You're going to meet clients that will probably ask, and you're going to have to figure out what your answer is going to be if they ask. How do you answer that question? Uh, I'm pretty out about being a parent. Yeah. I think that once you are a parent, it changes the academicness in which you respond to things. I think the one thing, I would count you as someone that doesn't do this. You're very open. But um, once you've had children, there's a way in which you're like, yeah, that happens. <laughs> like There's kind of a relaxed attitude. Um, and I think that the parents that I work with Sense that. I will say the single thing I say to parents that always surprises them and they get a lot from is I say, I see how hard you're working. And as a non parent, you might want to add that into your repertoire to just know how hard of a job it is, even when it's going well. So there are things that you won't learn in the clinical research about parenting. So you might want to spend some time with some young kids and some teenagers just to get a sense of what it's like beyond seeing somebody for 30 to 50 minutes every once in a while. Absolutely. And if you're if you do have kids and your kids are young and they're not teenagers yet, hanging out with kids is a good idea. But honestly, at internship, I've you know, you and I have trained a lot of people and uh, the people in my program primarily work in youth and family service agencies at internship. And I would say about half, maybe maybe a third, don't have kids. Um, and Or at least their kids are very young. 
And so their first experience, uh, to some extent, hanging out with teenagers is when they have their very first client who's a teenager. And what I, what I always, I used to say, you'll be fine, you'll be great. But now I just say, you're going to be terrible. And, <laughs> and that's that, but, you know, sucks to be those clients. But uh, you got to learn somehow, you know, and that's just, and this is how the system works. And, you know, uh, we'll be there for you to try to support you and help you. But when I think about the first 10 clients I saw, I, I, about half of them, I was so nervous or so out of my element that, it must have shown to them and they never came back. Now, the other half, I was holding on well enough that I could listen and, and have empathy. And I think that was the main thing. Uh, one cup, one client that I completely bombed was with a couple. I was so much in my head. I wasn't really listening, but anyway, yeah. So, um, so having experience with kids. Yeah. Yeah, well, I've so, so in my circle, which is the marriage and family therapy circle, no one cares if you have kids or not. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I know uh, at Antioch, guess how many full time instructors we have in the couple and family therapy program we have now? 10. 14. What? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So back when you and I were at Antioch, mm-hmm. there were three, mm-hmm. four, maybe. And now there's 14. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Jerry and Chus are gone because mm-hmm. they retired. Paul is half time. Mm-hmm. So I'm the only old timer. Mm-hmm. And all, and so 13 new people to you. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, but anyway, so among those people, like every once in a while, we'll talk about our personal lives and it'll come out, the our family configuration. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't. I don't look for that answer, and I feel like other people don't really look for that answer as some sort of verification that they know what they're talking about or not, you know? Sure, and I'm thinking a lot of people I know, probably 50% of the people I know don't have kids who work with kids because you've been a kid. Right. And it's not like having a kid makes you a better family therapist. No. it's, It's sort of a... It's a very specific job being a therapist, you know? Uh, if anything, you have less energy for your work. I mean, I would say the biggest shift that happened when I was a parent was I cared less about my job, which had some benefits, but probably some drawbacks. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a mixed bag. I mean, your job is to listen, and in that environment, it's to listen to multiple people. Right. And And there are many people who don't have that you don't share experiences with. Mm-hmm. You are an Asian American and you're talking to an African American. You're a Jewish American and you're talking to a non-Jewish white American. You are a man talking to a woman. You're a woman talking to a man. You're a straight person talking to a gay person. You know, there's 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 so many different things that you are going to be talking with people about that you are not. The other thing is is that you don't have to be an expert on other people's experience. You just have to be willing to uh, learn as best you can outside and inside of therapy and also listen well and, and, and get into that person's world. Uh, so um, so it, it really applies to a lot of things. And it's interesting because the one school of therapy that really or the section of therapy is addiction. Often people 
who work in addiction assume that you have to have been an addict right. yourself. And one of my earliest teachers said to me, who wasn't, hadn't been an addict, her response was, you know, I know suffering um, and I think we can meet there, which I thought was a really interesting response. Right. Um, and I don't know if I've told the story on the podcast, but uh, my first internship, we did a group a parenting group for these women. They all were living in the same project that Jay-Z grew up in. And it was supposed to be for any parent, but it was all single moms and their kids. And I was pretty voiceless that whole, I think it was like a six month group. And I just did not have a lot to say because I was so overwhelmed by how intense these women's experiences were. And at one point, my my supervisor was yelling at me like you gotta speak up like I expect you to co-run this group and you're doing nothing and so one of the groups the women asked me do you have kids and I looked at my supervisor and realized like I have to say something and I just chose to say no should I which the group just erupted in opinions and uh it was one of the most interesting groups for me I don't know my supervisor was probably horrified that I said that but that question is an interesting one. If you feel comfortable enough to, I mean, I wouldn't do this earlier in your career, but um, yeah, just asking your clients, you know, how has it impacted you to have kids is an interesting question if they know that you haven't. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. When they asked you, were you scared? Yeah, I was terrified. Yeah. Scared, yeah. scared that they're going to go... What is she doing here? She already isn't like us. And she doesn't have kids. Get her out of here. What does she know? Right. I mean, I felt in the presence of these women, I knew nothing. Yeah. Yeah, I was asked that question a lot when I was starting out. I was uh, 25 when I was an intern marriage and family therapist talking with parents about their parenting, talking with, uh, you know, five-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 15-year-olds. And I was 25 and uh, uh, didn't have, uh, was just, I was single and had no kids. And so it was uh, a question that was often asked of me. I don't get asked that anymore. But one you're thing. you're old I, and haggard. Looking. Well, yeah, that. And I don't, I don't treat a lot of young kids anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I did for the first half of my career, I'd say about, you know, a third of my clients were kids and teenagers and and their parents. And I was asked that. And early on, I, I decided for myself, because I'm fairly on the, on the spectrum of things, trying to be more of a blank slate, especially back then, because you could back then, because there's no internet, that, uh, especially when you don't choose to be on the internet, as I do. But the... Uh, thing I would say was I would say I, I'm I'm terribly sorry, but I don't answer that question. Mm. And you know that wasn't a satisfactory answer to a lot of people. But what I found was that it it was a sh- at which I'm sure people might be able to know this is that it's a shortcut way for anxious clients to find out if they can trust you. Right. Yeah. And of course, answering yes or no isn't going to make them trust you or not trust mm-hmm. you. So the the expression is, I don't trust you, and I'm asking you this question that is related to that. 
And so I would take that as a indication that they didn't trust me and I needed to do something to respond to that. It's a relationship barometer. They, we haven't bonded yet. They haven't, uh, a lot of times what therapists will, and cause I, you know, supervise a lot of young therapists who wonder about this thing. And the thing that I tell them is don't feel like you have to prove to these people that you're a good parent expert. Hmm. Um, because that still won't, cause underlying. So if you, if you ask them, why are you asking me if I have kids? And they were being honest. They would say, well, I'm, I, I think, what will you know about kids? H- mm-hmm. How do you know about kids if you don't have kids? It's a very specific experience. You can't just read about kids in a book and learn about what it's like to be a parent. But below that is a just general distrust human to human. And so uh, what I tell people is work on the relationship, give it time, uh, be likable, <laughs> be um, responsive to relationship ruptures and, and little things. And over time, the bond will increase and they won't have, they'll just like you and they'll want to work with you. I am also, I have two go-tos with parenting questions from my clients. One is whatever age that kid is at that time to ask them what their family life was like at that time that their kid is now. Does that okay. make sense? Sure. There's a wealth of information there. Yeah. Don't miss that one with the clients. And the other one is to go back to super basic child development issues. So this just happened today. A woman, uh, she's had a new baby. Her eight-year-old is rebelling on every level, sneaking food into the house that he shouldn't be having, going out in the neighborhood, finding the kids in the neighborhood with the most violent video games and playing those video games at their house. And all I could think was this kid is eight and it's developmentally appropriate. And so we talked about that for a while. His From here on out, this kid's major influences are his peers. Right. And so what what is and feels intolerable to her is so developmentally appropriate. And sometimes people forget that. They think, my kid is the worst kid ever. And it's always interesting to break that behavior down into normal developmental experiences. Right. Um, so pay attention in your developmental class, people. There's a wealth of information there. Yeah. And your cultural pocket that suggests certain ideas about what is good parenting or what is a good 13-year-old or what is scary about a 13-year-old or something. There's a lot of notions out there that I find that I have to break supervisees of, you mm-hmm. know? Like, like, what's a good example? What? What's a good example of that one? Well, in my class the other night, uh, Applied Family Therapy, we were talking about culture and different ideas about different things, and I brought up the idea of corporal punishment. Mm. And I often find that for mainstream white Americans, Seattle's actually, I should say mainstream Seattle white people, that the general rule is no corporal punishment at all, like none, not no spanking, no nothing, you know, and that's fine. It's not a bad parenting style, but it's extremely in the minority if you include the entire world. (laughs) And, uh, and what, I find is that when I ask Seattleites and even Seattleites who are becoming therapists who are mainstream 
and I, you know, and I ask them a few questions, they basically indicate, well, that's a superior way of parenting. That's the best way to parent. And the other cultures, even though they would never say this directly, who are using corporal punishment more liberally are being bad. They're abusing their kids. And I did a whole uh, research thing on this and, and found that, because I come from that culture too. My parents were um, extremely light on the corporal punishment, on the spanking. Uh, you know, I was spanked when I was last time. I remember I was four years old and uh, I was out past dark <laughs> and uh, I got spanked and I remember it not hurting. I remember mm -hmm. it being scary because it was an indication that my parents were really quite upset at me and I learned my lesson, you know, but, and, and so anyway, um, the, uh, findings are that it's not about whether or not you do corporal punishment or not corporal punishment. It's, it's the, it's the surrounding emotional experience around the corporal punishment and the severity, obviously. If you take a bat to the head of a kid, that's obviously going to be bad in any culture. But, but you know, harsh, painful smacking of the butt with a belt or a switch or a hand or a paddle or whatever um, can be abusive in some situations and can also be actually perceived as not completely non-abusive in other situations and different cultures handle it differently. Anyway, so I'm talking about that. And then uh, an African-American student uh, spoke up. She said, well, actually, I come from the other, you know, because I'm not mainstream. Spare the rod. Yeah, we, we you know, we say, uh, uh, she, she said, um, I will likely judge parents who don't whoop their kids when it's necessary. You know what I mean? And so, um, so there's just different ideas and they're all, and, and it's extremely rigid to influence. I find that when I try to talk about that with people, I, I see a lot of scrunched eyebrows and a lot of like little, little nose in the, in the, in the shaking of heads, like, no, 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 no. Corporal punishment is bad. And, you know, I get it. I feel it. I'm with you. But, um, one thing you learn about interacting with families and parenting is that there's a lot of ways to raise a healthy child. Mm -hmm. So, so the other question you ask, uh, patron Jessica is about being young and you're worried about that. And, um, what I, and that can affect things. Um, I talked about in another recent episode in which when I was 25 and an intern, I really wanted to be respected, you know, but I, it was hard to get respect, um, which is fine, but it was, I, I sort of expected, I was like, well, I'm an intern, I'm young, whatever. But then there was this new intern who was, you know, seniority-wise in terms of uh, experience and stuff was like a year behind me. And he was brand new and really had no idea what he was doing, which is understandable. But he was 60 years old, mm -hmm. and, he, and he looked 60 years old, and he, had, he was white, and he had gray hair and a beard, and he looked like Freud. <laughs> and he got a hundred times more respect than I did from his clients. Mm -hmm. I mean, his clients were uh, you know, on the edge of their seats with him. And uh, it wasn't a big deal because I was friends with him, but I noted it and I thought, that is interesting. <laughs> 
because I know from private conversations with him that he's terrified and has no idea what he's doing, which is understandable. He's an intern. But people just assume that he's been at it for 40 mm-hmm. years, you mm-hmm. know? And and plus, like, at the time, I'm, you know, I'm a half Asian guy, and I, I had really long hair. I had a big ponytail of, of dark brown hair. And it uh, I don't fit the mold of what a therapist should look like, you know what I mean? Uh, especially back then. And so, so anyway, it's a thing, and you have to think about it. But in my experience, if you... Uh, give it enough time and, and again, build the alliance, build the attachment, build a relationship with the client that they will learn to respect you in the way that you deserve to be respected, however much respect that is. And if they don't, it can say a lot about them. I mean, not everybody's ready for this relationship um, and not everybody can trust it, anybody. Like I was thinking back, um, it's getting towards the end of the year and there's at a certain point we can toss our seven-year-old files, right? Right. <laughs> so I always kind of get excited to that at that point. And I was looking through names and I remembered this client that I had that I hadn't thought about it in so long where she was obsessed with time and eventually gave me this long speech about why she was ending our practice because I came in, I came out a minute late and I checked her out two minutes early. And, um, you know, she was really looking for a different kind of therapist than I could offer. I'm not right. super focused on time. Okay. And so some people are going to be fine with a young therapist because they really need somebody. And some people are going to gravitate to that older guy, even though he's had much less experience. Right. Um, and I guess to just not take it personally. Like when this woman gave me this huge speech on time... I was laughing inside because it was a double Capricorn. I'm probably the most prompt person out there. I was early today to this meeting. Um, So, you know, you're never going to know what's going to trigger somebody. And sometimes it's really about them. Right. And to pre-worry about such things isn't going to help you. And and there's not much you can do. Again, if the thing you really want to focus on is... One, as you're saying, Rebecca, is just like let go of the attachment that all of your clients are going to respect you and like you. <laughs> you know, some of your clients are just going to think you're a giant boob, and and that's just the way that it's going to go. And you, and that's okay. You know, it's maybe you didn't do a good job. You know that that the notion that I want, always try to get into my supervisees, which never never gets in. It probably gets about two percent in, which is. It's okay to screw up as a therapist. Mm-hmm. It's totally okay. And the notion that you're not going to screw up is ridiculous. And the notion that you have to like uh, prevent yourself from screwing up. Um, at no other job is that, uh, or very few jobs is that the expectation, you know? You're, uh, you are, uh, you make, I'm looking at my deck. You're a construction person and you make decks. Occasionally you're going to, as you're nailing something in, you're gonna you're gonna miss, and you're gonna have to pull that nail out, and you're gonna have to put in another nail. It you make mistakes, or you make a deck, and the whole thing is off kilter, and you got to tear it apart and build it again. Yeah, I mean it happens, and and in therapy it happens too. And and the other part of it is that um, uh, there are strengths to being young. For me, when I was young, uh, I was I and I remember thinking this. Um, 
I'm Asian and a man and young. And so people automatically assumed I would be excellent with uh, teen Asian boys. Oh, I thought you were going to say math. (laughs) Well, that too. Uh, And gardening for some reason, because that was an old stereotype from back in the day. And I benefited from that stereotype. So, So there's a plus and a minus. You know, if you're a therapist and you're 60 and you work with you know, five. I, so I've seen this. I, I had a male uh, supervisee who was, I don't know, 55 ish, and he looked 55 ish. And he, uh, he was uh, at his internship, and they refused to give him kids for mm-hmm. clients. Mm-hmm. And I, and it, it's like uh, ageism, mm-hmm. right? And sexism, frankly, because if he was a woman who was 55, yeah. it would have been different. And so it took me a while to like yell at this site and be like, you, because the problem is if they, if you don't give them kids, they don't get experience with kids. And two, they can't get their hours to graduate because hmm. they need hours with families. And so, uh, so there's a lot of different things. So anyway, being young has its benefits. Um, the other thing that I'll say is that uh, Seattle in particular is a very casual city. And so when you already look like you're 17, and you dress and sort of uh, hold yourself like a 17-year-old, even though you're 25, uh, that's something to think about. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm frequently telling my supervisees, you have to think about your instrument. In acting, they talk about use your instrument. Right. Well, so I often wanted to do this. I never got around to it, but I wanted to hold these workshops where I would take a group of supervisees into Goodwill and just dress them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like we're going to give you a professional wardrobe for $40. Like because there is this level of playing the character. Yeah. Um and so you when you were saying that I was flashing when I first started supervising at Antioch I was 34 years old and I had two pairs of black slacks that I would rotate between. And for some reason I thought these like crepey black slacks made me look like an adult. And now I wear jeans, now at 47, I wear jeans to work often um, because I have graying hair and an almost double chin and I don't have to work as hard at looking <laughs> respectable anymore. Uh, but I think about those black slacks often, like, that is so ridiculous. Why was I so focused on the pants? But it made me feel the part. Right. And look, the part. <laughs> Particularly if you went the opposite direction and and dressed like a kid, right? Mm-hmm. Or casual. Yeah, I was the same way. I would wear full-on three-piece suits. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I think the next time we podcast, you should be in a three-piece suit, and I should wear some black, creepy pants. Yeah, I... Um, but because, you know, so if you just scan my body, you'd see, mm-hmm. like, what looks to be dressed like a lawyer... But the head of a child (laughs) and uh, the ponytail of a grunge rocker, you know what I mean? And so I was trying to overcompensate Mm -hmm. uh, or compensate for uh, that whole thing. Um, I I will say, so in that first supervisee class, I had a woman who was probably in her late 40s. And she gave me so much respect that it was kind of life-changing to me. Like, oh, I can earn this. <laughs> um, and that was a great lesson. And also, in all of my early jobs, I was working with people twice, sometimes three times my age. 
And really what people need is someone that will listen. Right. If you can slow down and listen to somebody and reflect back to them that you have heard them, it it builds the relationship faster than any fabulous theory that you can spit back out at them. Exactly. And the vibe that you will have in that by doing that will create the relationship style of parenting that the you you go up to a you know i don't know the ceo of a big company and he's 60 years old and he's established and he's a you know whatever in terms of society you get a 22 year old intern a woman who listens and says how are you doing with real leaning in empathy and as he says well i don't know well, tell me, you know, how, is is your life stressful or are things going well? I don't know. They're kind of stressful. Tell me about that stress. As you enter into that vibe, that is a parent-child relationship that the 60-year-old man will willingly, wonderfully step into because that's what he needs. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't, he's not going to prevent himself from doing that or at least there's a big part of him in general that won't want to prevent himself from doing that because you look like you're 22. He'll want to, because we desire that so badly, we're very willing to look past that kind of thing. And and yeah, it was the same for me when I was young. There was a, I remember there was a time when I realized, oh, I think most of my clients are younger than me now. <laughs> there, it was in the past, I don't know, five, five, ten years or something, there was a point where I was like, wait a second, I think I've, I'm now older than most of my clients because there was a time when that was definitely not the case. Um, so I'll, I'll just tell one story and then we'll take a break. I was, uh, again, I was like 25, 26, just starting out, and I had this... Uh, I was working with this family and there was an estranged family member who uh, it was the husband of the parents were divorced. I was working with the wife and the kids and I wanted to work with the ex-husband, but he was uh, real uh, hesitant to work with me for various reasons that I probably didn't know about. But uh, he, for some reason, did not like the advice I was giving the family or something, which I can't imagine what he would have had conflict with. I think he just sort of made it up in his head. And so he went to court and had a temporary order uh, preventing me from seeing this family because the court believed his allegation that I was 19 and had no credentials. So he went to court had no idea what my credentials were. I'm sh- I'm sure I gave him my credentials when I first met him. Uh, two thought I was 19, so he goes to court and says, "My kids are being treated by a 19 year old boy with no credentials. I want you, judge, to uh, you know uh, provide an order preventing this quack from seeing my seeing my children." And the judge gave that order. Wow. Yeah, this was when bef- this was back when I thought courts were sane, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Especially family court. And I, you know, this is one of the main data points when I realized, oh, family court is like a chaotic mess of God knows what happens, you know? There's, there seems to be like very little guidelines for these judges and they just do stuff, you know? And so I was prevented from seeing this family because 
someone made something up. Do you know what I mean? Um, and uh, so, yeah. So sometimes being young will have, you know, tangible problems in your life. But, you know, it wasn't like I stayed awake at night worrying about this whole thing. I was just like, well, that's funny. Um, I hope the mom figures out a way to fight this in court so mm -hmm. that I can work with them again. But if not, I guess no big deal. Um, I remember this family so well. If you look over there, I have a note that was written to me. Uh, I think it's the Aww. the green one. Mm -hmm. um, it's a very large note. Yeah, it's a very, <laughs> very big thank you note. I... I, I I what you zoomed at, what I blew I it up on the phone blew it up because this profession you know is hard to remember that we actually do a good mm -hmm. thing and so I wanted it to be very large anyway so let's take a break and we get back let's talk about your trip what do you say Rebecca bueno que bueno All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com and you get access to lots of good things, including very detailed deep dives in which we talk about things for long periods of time. I'm working on one about suicide. Oh, good. And it's working. It's. I thought it would be, I don't know. I always think, well, you know, how long can I talk about suicide, right? You know, but it's working out to be like, Several hours, I'm wow. guessing, yeah. There's just, it touches on so many different things. Yeah, and it's such an issue in our culture right now. Yeah, it's getting worse. Yeah. Which is counter to a lot of other uh, measures of society, you know. Crime is going down, mm -hmm. murder is going down. Um, poverty is, uh, you know, uh, still a problem, but uh, we're working on it. And, and then you have this suicide going up, and you just wonder, like, um, I thought we had more time for kids to mm. make them feel, you know, it's just like well, our culture is going just, in a right. lot of bad directions. It's not just, it's a lot of older people are committing suicide. Absolutely. But, yeah. and it's, but it's increasing for all mm -hmm. age groups. Um, we got distracted. <laughs> email me if you have trouble with the premium feed once you become a pa patron, because sometimes it can get a little confusing, which I apologize for but it's just kind of the way that it is because no one cares about podcasts to make it easy. Uh, buy my book, which is called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. Buy Rebecca's book, which is called Square the Circle, a art therapy workbook. And your other... And my other book... Which you can't remember. Which I can't remember. I can see the cover. But if you look on Amazon, it'll lead you to the other Rebecca book. Bloom. Her other book. Buy her other book, too. That's how um, relaxed I am from vacation. Like our Facebook page... Attunement. Attunement. An art therapy coloring book or something. Art therapy like, <laughs> something, like something like that. Like it's that. something like that. <laughs> uh, like our Facebook page and play our Tuesday Puffer, Tougher Bluff game. Join the Facebook fan group. Tweet Umberto at Psycho Birdo. Uh, it's Psycho as in zero. Psych zero Birdo. Uh, where can people tweet? Do people do YouTube? Yeah, uh, you can tweet me at rbloomatr. Or follow me on Instagram at rtext. This is before I knew you had to have like a single platform that you used across all platforms. <laughs> um, there's an archive on our website. That's where all of our episodes are. We have so many episodes now that uh, unless you're on our website, you're likely only given access to about a third of our episodes. Um, yeah. Hey, I have a request. Sure. When I'm on the podcast, can you put my name in the title so that I can search all the me podcasts? Um, and sure. Okay. So, 
What was your trip like? Where'd you go? Wowie, wow, wow. So I spent a month in Barcelona, outside Barcelona, in the hamlet of Casa de Fels, which tagline is a lively city. And I would agree, it is a lively city, especially because I was there during fireworks season. So there was a lot of fireworks going on. Um, we were right there on the beach, looking at the Mediterranean every day, eating tapas for dinner, and every day I took my son out for gelato at four o'clock. So can't really complain with that. Uh, ate a lot of jamón from the Museo de Jamón, which is a store that only sells ham legs, <laughs> different qualities of ham legs. Um, and then we went to Madrid for a couple of days, which is very hot. The end of June. Not the best time to go. And then from there, we spent a day in Toledo, as we would pronounce in America, Toledo, which is the former Jewish capital of Spain. And it is quite likely that my wife said Yortzeit for her grandmother in what was once the temple that her family began using around the 1100s. Huh. So quite a magic moment. Yeah. Uh, from there, we went to Croatia with two and a half weeks before the plan really started. So in the taxi cab, my wife asked the driver, where should we go? And he said, you should go to Coronati Islands. So we started researching how to get there. Coronati Islands are an hour and a half boat ride from murder, <laughs> Croatia. Murder, Croatia? Murder. It's with a J, but oh. they pronounce it murder. And uh, it was... Just a tiny spit of limestone with some olive trees on it and cicadas that went 14 hours a day. And then the Adriatic Sea, which is 2% saltier than what we're used to. So you just float. So all hours of day or night, you'd hear people jumping in the water. And uh, we stayed in a tiny town that had about 20 houses in it. And it's... um. There, there's a real focus on being in the outdoors and being close to nature. And so most families, if they can, have what's called a Robinson house, which is a one or two room house that the whole family comes to and you drink grappa and you eat grilled fish and you go swimming. What's grappa? Uh, or actually the brandy. It's uh, brandy made out of just about anything you can find. So we, you know, plum brandy... Sage brandy, good for the throat. Open. Sage brandy. Sage brandy. Very. If I could find some sage listeners, if you know in America where to find sage brandy, I couldn't bring anything back with me of that quality. Uh, elderflower brandy. There was this other drink that was like basically every herb we can find made into brandy. Um, and there was a lot of hospitality. So, like, you check into your Airbnb and, you know, it's supposed to be... There's no one else living in the house with you, but they're over every day. And maybe they bring food over. And the welcoming is, uh, you know, blood sausage and other sausages that they've made and fresh bread and some brandy and some cheese. And we made this cheese ourselves. And, you know, three days later, you might not see them for a day. So, lots of time in nature, lots of time in the water... Uh, Croatia is famous for its water, which is because of the limestone, ice blue. You can see down 30 feet. Uh, it's pretty unbelievable. Wow. And then spent some time in some other parts of Croatia, jumped off a bunch of cliffs, rafted down some cliffs. They just throw, 
you get to this place and they're like, okay, everybody out of the boat. We're going to throw the boats over the cliff. <laughs> you could also jump down or you could walk down. Um, and was in many parts of Croatia. Learned a lot more about the history, but um, there was a lot of abandoned buildings, like in the Lika River Valley where we were. And we thought that they had been bombed out in the Civil War in the 90s. But it turned out they were probably owned by Serbian families who were moved back to Serbia and then no one had money to take care of these buildings. So they're just like falling apart. So there'll be like three buildings that are in good shape, one that's falling apart, three more that are in good shape. It's just a real reminder of what's happened there so recently. And we were there for the whole World Cup lead up. Yeah. So we were there for probably for five games that Croatia won. Uh, got to hear those games called in Croatian. There's nothing quite like a name in Croatian said in Croatian, like Rakovic. <laughs> There's a lot of consonants. And um, they, when they lost, we were on the island of Korčula, which is across from Dubrovnik, which is where they film most of Game of Thrones. Oh. Yeah. So we're watching the game in a medieval city. And what Game of Thrones? Oh, uh, and I I don't know. Oh, but they many like is there a castle there? Or something? Yes. Oh, most of any time they're kind of out in the street being marched down a promenade, that is all Dubrovnik. Hmm. Um, or if you've seen the Game of Thrones, where the Mother of Dragons goes down to shame her dragons for killing people, I was in that cellar the stairway doesn't exist right but it's like you're walking along and you're like wait a second <laughs> i've seen this place right it's ancient greek romans right or uh roman Ro- roman yeah. ruins yeah and at that time that whole area was under the roman empire and split where most people fly into was the retirement home of like the third roman empire right uh, so this is what i did my research on was like i i have always loved uh, or not always, sorry. Past five years, I've loved Roman history and mm-hmm. Greek history and stuff. And when I have studied it and listened to podcasts and stuff, of course, they talk about the Roman Empire and its various different uh, growth spurts. And uh, Croatia and you know Greece and that whole uh, area was one of the first places that Rome took over, and it, and it was... Uh, one of the uh, first major, I don't know, areas for for the Roman Empire. But to me, in my head, I always put Rome in Rome and Italy, Mm -hmm. you know, and and not in Croatia and Greece and all these other places. And so when I looked at Split, for example, it it looked exactly like uh, any other Roman, um, you know, settlement, uh, Roman ruins, right? But in my so in my head, I've had to, of course, because it makes total sense. I have to sort of reorient my brain, and the the core of the Roman Empire wasn't just in Italy, which of course makes sense. Right. Well, and you really get the sense of how big the seafaring tradition is still now in Croatia. So we were there when they were going to be doing this regatta where everybody sails were rigged the old way, the square way, like when you think of a Roman ship, you think of those big square sails. Mm. And we were watching this guy re-rig his 
little boat by himself and it was terrifying it was like any minute that boom's gonna like strike him right in the head but you realize he's been doing this his whole life and he knows the math of it and to think of like the ancestral history of the people he learned from someone else who learned who learned who learned like all the way back it really made me think about how young america is and we just don't have this history here right. to to draw from and to see ourselves in and i left really hopeful oddly with everything going on because you could just see people who had literally lived through so much you know in their lifetime three civil wars back to you know they have a history that goes back to like 500 bc right there in front of them right they can see it all yeah um Split is really amazing. You you can go from the Roman ruins. You just walk up some stairs. You're in the churches that the Greeks had built that the Catholics just took over. And then there's this really high church tower. And it's, uh, you know, you're just stacking those cultures right up on top of each other. Right. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so we ended our time in uh, near Lyca, which is... Um, these streams that come up out of the these like ancient aquifers and so the water is freezing cold and right there at the head of the stream is a flour mill that's run on the stream current and everybody brings their grain there to uh get made into flour yeah um and so this you you're the arc the um agricultural history like you're so touched in with it, or we stumbled onto a goat being butchered, knowing that that goat would be eaten that night. Like there was just a real closeness to food and culture and all yeah. that. And yeah, I, I had the same uh, when I was in Santorini, Greece. I'm at a restaurant that was, uh, the chair was, like I'm not exaggerating, four inches from a cliff that went into the ocean or the Mediterranean, right? I wasn't like a huge cliff. It was like 10 feet down, but, um, and I could see the, uh, fisher guys out just not even that far, maybe, I don't know, a hundred yards, uh, pulling out octopuses. And then, uh, over on another, uh, part of my same view, I can see the, the octopuses, I've realized now it's octopus is not octopi because it's some because it's not a Latin word or something anyway, and hanging to dry, and then in the same field of view over to my right, I can see a guy in an open air barbecue that was set into the stone of the island, a cooking the octopus. And then uh, here I am eating an octopus. <laughs> it's like all the all the uh, right in front of me was the full cycle, which was uh, just yeah, f- as a Seattleite, just completely foreign to me. I mean, the only the only thing I could think of that would be somewhat similar is if I accidentally drank a gulp of water of, <laughs> while I was swimming in Green Lake or something, you know. <laughs> Maybe we'll go out and catch a salmon. And we'll have <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, so so that happened to me when I was a kid. We um, would, my dad and his friends would catch salmon, and then uh, since we eat raw salmon, we would we would just mm. eat it right there. Mm-hmm. Um, someone would prepare it, you know what I mean? But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, 
Anyway, so uh, the connection with the land. What I'm curious how your son was doing. He's he's fourteen. Fourteen. So uh, does he have his screens? In he's got his screens. He was pretty grumpy for parts of it and pretty homesick. What really worked out for us was that we took these twice on this long trip. We took these teen tours where we were with other families with teens, and that was great. He just would escape with these kids. We wouldn't see him like 10 hours a day. I have all these photos where he's like, you know, 50 feet away from us with this group of kids that he's just met two days before, and now they're inseparable, and we had the parents to talk to. Like American kids or? No, these are all people from the UK. Okay. So that was fascinating to talk with them about Brexit and our experience with our current administration and and I was really worried that people would judge me for being American, but what I learned is that everybody's had a shitty leader at some point. Right. And, you know, when you're in Spain, they were under Franco for 40 years. Like, there's this real sense of, you know, your your government doesn't necessarily reflect you in a way um, that was kind of, you know, refreshing. I mean, everybody's participating in the system, but there's a sense that, like, if it doesn't go your way that's the way of things and your way will come back around. Um, but I really want to speak on the night that Croatia lost the big game to France. Mm-hmm. So we're in this square with this like semifinals or that's the finals. Oh, it was the final. Yeah. So that was the final game. Yeah. Croatia like got second place. Yeah. Oh, so these French fans are screaming their national anthem and doing all kinds of stuff that as an American, there are probably Americans who would do that, but I have definitely been trained to like hide your Americanness. Oh God, I, are you kidding me? If I was in, if I was anywhere, even in my own city, and it was, you know, the Olympics or even the World Cup or something, you'd have to put a gun to my head before <laughs> I was going to stand up and say USA. I mean, there is nothing more disgusting in my mind about people standing up. And, you know, t- having nationalism in that form. I mean, I definitely have n- national pride in, you know, freedom and our ever, uh, you know, the, the, the bending of justice, uh, you know, the, the time bends towards justice, whatever. The road is long, but it bends towards justice. justice. <laughs> Martin Luther King. Um, I, I, I take tremendous pride in that. Uh, but, Yeah the the associations that are in our country around standing up and yelling USA yeah I, if i was i would just be quietly like hoping my team <laughs> actually no i'll tell you what if we were in the world cup i'd be hoping we would lose hmm. because you know we get so many things already do you know what i mean like oh yeah and people hate us anyway and yeah. so you know let someone else have a shot at number 1 you know well, so I'm watching these French fans, and I'm like, tone it down. And Croatia was the underdog, right? Right. So Croatia has one-tenth of the population of France. So the idea that... And they're poorer, right? Yeah, but they have an amazing sports culture and sports medicine culture. They have probably one of the best feeder leagues in the world, and it's one of the ways they actually make their money is that... They, from a very young age, train these kids to be amazing soccer players. They play for a while in Croatia, and then they sell them for millions of dollars to big teams. Mm-hmm. So one of the big players plays under Ronaldo, or plays center to Ronaldo's forward on um, in Madrid. And 
It's why that team is so good. So there are all these kind of secondary amazing players that nobody pays attention to. But so they lose, right? And people and they lose by a lot. It's a it's like one to four. Like you just can't believe it's gone down this way. And at this point, I'm so emotionally invested in this whole story. And we're a little bit nervous. Like in America, this is kind of riot territory at this point, right? Oh, it's riot territory in a lot of countries. So what happens? And, you know, we are in kind of a touristy area. But what happened next blew my mind, which is that people kind of stayed together. The Croatians that had gathered together stayed together, sang all night long their old folk songs, their favorite songs. So we just walked around the city. There's groups of people everywhere we go, joyously enjoying each other's company. And it made me think like, oh, we're together. That's the, that's the most important part of this mm. is that we've gathered together. We, our country's now on the map. Of the, we've played really well at the world stage. Let's have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> it was so mind-blowing and heartwarming. And we just walked around all night kind of looking around in shock. And like, I didn't want to go home because these songs are so magical sounding. If people are bored and you want to go and look up four-part Croatian harmony songs, Croatian folk songs. It, I felt like I probably did when I was an infant and someone would sing to me and I didn't know what they were saying, but it was just so soothing and lovely. Uh, so that was the, that's what went down. It was one of the most special moments of my life. Mm. And then the next day, uh, there was a thing that ran in the paper so four members of that team were refugees in the first croatian civil war they were croatian ethnics in serbia members of their family had died they were living in zadar and crappy housing just trying to restart their lives these men progressed to be some of the greatest soccer players in the world mm. and there's this flag there's the four of them are on the pitch in Moscow, and they're standing with the Croatian flag, and it says Zadar. And I'm looking at this picture, and I start to tear up, and I realize I've been in this country a really long time. <laughs> I understand exactly what this picture is saying, which is we are so proud of the place that we come from. The place that we come from is such a complicated history. It's amazing that we survived till survived our childhood, and yeah. We're yeah. really good at what we do. It was very sweet. So, if I would have seen that, I would have been like, "Huh, I wonder. <laughs> I wonder what that. I wonder what's going on there." I wonder and where Zadar is. Yeah. Well, that's really great to have soaked up the history and the vibe of the area to to that extent. That's, I guess, the nice thing about being able to spend so much time. Yeah. And then we went looking for the jerseys, which were all sold out. So what we settled for in this tiny grocery store on the most southern end of Korchula, the team in Split is Hijack Split. And everywhere you go, you see their red and white logo with the circle around it. It's like they are the team of the people. And we're in the grocery store and in these plastic Ziploc bags are like the beanies with the logo on it. And I pick it up and I'm like, oh, we should buy this. And my son is like, that's stupid. Don't buy it. And then my wife picks it up and then we decide we're going to buy it. We only bought one. My son has been wearing it nonstop since we've been home. But I so wish I would have bought like 10. <laughs> so I could just like, if you want to know what Croatia is, here's a soccer beanie. Like these, this is... 
what the people really care about. This is what brings them together. Um, and then the history of why they're such good sports players, because they're also number one in water polo, of all things, huh. is that because they were so ethnically, they it's because they're so geographically isolated, they are higher Neanderthal than almost any other people. Oh. And are known as being fierce warriors. How much Neanderthal? I don't know. You'd have to look it up, but it's just it's more. And the average height of a man or woman there is like six six. Like it's you get immediately you get off the plane in the airport and you're like, I feel very very short. Wow! <laughs> like the people here are huge. Huh. Um. So to go from that to Turkey, where the average guy is like five five, my son was like, I look like an adult here. Uh-huh. Um. So when you're ready, we can talk about Turkey, which is a completely different experience. I'm ready. Diff- Uh-oh, different experience. That that sounds ominous. So Turkey was rough. We got scammed. We got groped. The, the Turkish lira devalued by 10% while we were there. Oh, my God. If you want to see the look of panic on people's faces, I imagine, you know, I know it's much worse than Venezuela, but, you know, people were asking to get paid in euros, which is like, you know, I'll do it if I can. But um, I kind of, before it happened, we'd gotten a ton of lira out and then it was like, yeah. Um, But the stuff around gender traveling in Turkey as two lesbians with an older son People just didn't know what to do with us. Everywhere we went, we got given twin beds for us as adults. And it's like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to argue about this. Uh, yeah, it was it was a trip. Um, and then they have a tyrannical leader who will kill anybody that speaks out against him. So we would have conversations with people in kind of hushed tones about what they were doing. Some people were choosing to stay. Some people had an exit strategy. Um, and then you could see why the economy was collapsing because all around were these massive infrastructure projects. Like outside of Istanbul, there's like 10 blocks that have been cleared and these huge apartment buildings are going in. And they're half built. And then while we were there, we learned that it's all built on like, you know, kind of shadow money that's not really there. Hmm. Um, There's a huge, in the square where the big protest took place three years ago, they've cleared it to the left. They're building a huge mosque. So I'm just, I don't know if any of these projects are going to get finished because there's, there's no money left. So you were scammed? We were scammed, and it was so funny slash horrible because it was the scam we read about in the book on the airplane on the way there. We thought, that's such a stupid scam. How could anybody fall for it? But then it happened to us, which is you go into a restaurant, and they don't give you a menu, and you just order what you would normally order, and then the bill comes, and it's outrageous, and then they produce a menu that has these outrageous prices on it. Oh. Yeah. So you went into a, so you read about this. Yes. And then you go into a restaurant yeah. and, and you see a menu, no prices. We there's no menu. There's no menu. Yeah. So how do you know what to order? Cuz you know it's hot and you've been there a few days and you're like, uh, you know, do you have something with lamb in it? Oh yeah, yes, 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 yes. Do you have something with fish in it? And uh, and it didn't occur to you in the moment like maybe I should look at the menu. No, cuz you're hot and it's 
But it, so it didn't trigger no. like we read about this earlier. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And it, you know, this is how people get scammed, scammed when you're traveling. Like you're you're out of your element. You're kind of overwhelmed. You're just happy to have found food. Yeah. So so then what? So the waiter brings out the thing and says you the bill. Yes. And how much was it? It was like $90 American for lunch. Okay. And you could Which normally it would be what like 10 bucks or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. So so then what? So Beth, I'm I freak out and I'm like let's just pay it and get out of here. I'm so she's a lawyer, embarrassed. Though. She's a lawyer though. I'm so embarrassed. So she's like no, I'm refusing to pay it. So she goes Eli and I walk away and she goes into full negotiations with the guy and I don't know. I think they took like a third off in the end. Um, but I was so ashamed. Like I was, I was just, I couldn't believe it that we'd read about the scam and then we got scammed with it. Yeah. It was the worst. Yeah. So you should have said, I need to see a menu with, yes. with prices. Yeah. Before I order anything, I want to see a menu with prices. Yes. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I would have done the same thing. I would have just been like, I'm I guess I'm paying this bill with with a tip because I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Right. Yeah. Uh well that's not so bad. I mean right. yeah. You it go was- you go to London, you you pay ninety bucks for three people for lunch. <laughs> I mean uh and groped? Yeah. I don't want to tell too much about that story, but uh let's just say that's very I've heard it from other people, other women who have been in turkey it's quite common uh even when you think you're doing your best to what would be incredibly conservative dress here is considered really provocative and there is license to touch women and and i have heard this from women women like you know it's one of those things like once you tell the story then everybody has a story for you like i was groped on a train in italy i was groped on a train in japan yeah um so yeah, the 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 value and sanctity of a woman's body is seen as up for grabs. Yeah, um, and it was icky and gross and impacted a lot of things. Yeah, and then in contrast to that, the street that we happened to be staying on was had a very active sex trade of trans women. So w- trans women prostitutes with like perfectly flat ironed hair and super tiny black western dress doing a brisk trade in the sex work field to the point where my son noticed and said i think that woman just picked up a trick i was like yes that is exactly what you just saw um so the idea in its place that's so conservative so homophobic yeah that trans women who I learned through my research don't have access to any other job. This is the only option for them to earn money. But the idea that people both disdain someone and would pay them for sex. Right. It's kind of fascinating. Right. Well, that's depressing. Yeah. Yeah. So Turkey was like, whoosh, that was a lot. And then we flew south. To, I mean, did you have any good times in Turkey? Yeah. We flew south to the kind of Acapulco. Of so Turkey. Istanbul, no good. And I'm not going to, I know lots of people love that city. We traveled many places and had an amazing time. Everybody says you have a couple off days when you travel. Ours happened to occur in Istanbul. Okay. I'm not going to knock it as a city. It's one of the most beautiful, architecturally stunning. Were there other like bad, bad vibes or bad attitudes? Or uh, No, no. 
Scammed and groped. Scammed and groped. That'll ruin anybody's time. <laughs> it happened all in one day, too. Yeah. Um, Did so, you just run back to the hotel? Oh, yeah. The next day, they're like, I'm going to Blue Mosque. I'm like, I'm taking a day off. But I did wander around the neighborhood that I was in and you know, had a great time antique shopping and talking to store owners and having tea in a tiny cafe. Like, you okay. know, I bounced back. Okay. So then we flew south to what is known as the Lycian Coast. Uh, the Lycians are on par with the Egyptians and the Greeks in terms of architecture. So there are just these, you know, huge arenas, crazy tall monuments. They were master stone carvers. So when you get up close, it's like they carved in what would look like a nail with a nail head, you know, like just, just carving in stone just for fun. Um, and the, all of their monuments and stuff was exquisite. We had a wonderful... We hooked up with another tour, and we had a great guide who stepped in immediately when anything could possibly go wrong and negotiated it for us, uh, which was just lovely. I've never had that in my life. <laughs> it was like having a front man. And uh, so we were in the water a ton in Turkey. We were on a boat um, jumping into the Aegean Sea, which is also very salty. And learned this crazy history, which I didn't know, which is that when Turkey became a state in 1924, there were many people of Greek descent in Turkey and many, there was like a thousand people that way. And then there are many Turkish people in Greece, 800,000 people that way. And there was like a swap of populations because there was a fear much like um, the internment during the Japanese war that these people couldn't possibly be loyal to these new nations. Mm. And so you have all these abandoned cities mm. where the population left. Even from back then? Even from back then. Wow. Uh, and then there's, I guess there's tons of Turkish films made about this huge displacement that happened and how those people never really... Fit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're, you know, thousands and thousands of people essentially um, stripped away of all their social capital, all their right. job, all their uh, everything, and then you know, like societies can absorb like small trickles of mm -hmm. of immigrants um, in certain ways, but when you have just like that many, it's yeah, it's real hard to ever recover from that from that displacement, yeah. I didn't know about that. It's interesting. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, to think, what's that? Almost 2 million people displaced right. in this story, and we don't know that history. So we kept passing these abandoned villages, hmm. which is really amazing. And then the last, one of the last days we were there, we were on this little island, and we could see that there were those huts, and so we wanted to go explore. And as we got closer, my wife... Or maybe I thought it was a restaurant. Someone thought it was a restaurant. But we approached these people that had a lovely setup, and she asked for tea. <laughs> it turned out it was their vacation house, and they were like, uh, in like 10 minutes, we can make you tea. Oh, so wait a second. You walked up to someone's house. Basically. And thought it was a business. Yes. And you asked them for tea. Yes. Like, you just sat down. We started chatting. And then Beth said, can we have some tea? And they were like, uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Through, you know, we speak no Turkish. Their English is very limited. We're mostly using iPhones to talk back and forth. Um, With Google Translate? 
or just like these are my kids. This is where I'm from. Oh, you know, we knew enough Turkish at that point to understand that they lived in Fethiye or Fethi. I'm saying it wrong. So what they do? Did they get tea? They made us tea from the local herbs harvested from right there. They gave us a ton to bring back to the boat. We brought it back to the boat. All the Turkish people on the boat were like ecstatic to get these herbs and let us know all the medicinal uses for them. They smelled amazing. When did you figure out they weren't a business? When Beth was like, we pay? And they were like, no, this is our house. (laughs) That is so funny. And of course, so we where were you sitting in the house? Well, they their house was like a tent on a huge platform. Okay, fully set up. They got water. They got stoves. It was like really nice glamping. Okay, and so you're in their house. Yeah, we're in their house. You just walked up to their house, sat yeah. down on their chairs. Yeah, asked for tea and hung out for a while. Yeah, and they're like, we have these people in our house and, and then we're you- like in like western bathing suits like after the whole thing was done i realized this is probably one of the most ridiculous experiences of my entire life <laughs> they're gonna tell this story forever this time this two american women wandered up to our house and demanded tea in their bikinis and sat down <laughs> <laughs> but definitely a story for the ages did you use the bathroom no 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 because that might have tipped you off. Because right. if you go into the bathroom, you're like, wait a second. I, <laughs> I see, like, this looks like someone's But home. I think they would have had an outhouse. Like, I don't think they had a bathroom bathroom. Oh, okay. I remember kind of looking around. But we learned that it was his uncle's. No, it was his brother's property. His brother had a sheep farm of 50, 500 sheep and let him use this really nice corner in the summer as a place to hang out. So... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is the definition of ugly American right there. That's like a that's like a good SNL skit or something. That's funny. Wait, of course we can come over and Yeah. Just call <laughs> I'm just gonna colonize your house for a little bit. <laughs> we'll pay for it. Right, exactly. They uh, seemed yeah, they seemed very amused by us. Yeah. You infected them with smallpox. <laughs> well, and it was like we had nothing on us. Like I think I had like a you know, my bathing suit had, like, a pocket in the back. So, like, I think I had, like, 10 lira on me. But, like, we didn't have our phones. We didn't have shoes on. Like, we we were, like, basically, if somebody wandered into your their house, your house in their bathing suit, <laughs> it was like, hi, can I have some tea? And you were like, I'll do what I can. I don't know. It's kind of short notice, but. So, where'd you go after Turkey? Then we flew home, 28-hour journey. The Turkish airport in Istanbul, too, I just want to prepare anybody that's traveling in Turkey. I've heard it's this way in Kenya, too, that before you can even walk into the airport, you go through metal detectors. So we arrive, and Eli's like, why is there this huge line? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't speak the language. We'll figure it out. But as you approach, it's metal detectors. So if everybody goes through, then if you're getting on an airplane, you go through a second set of metal detectors. Then if you're flying out of Turkey, get to your plane like an hour early because you wait in another line where they put your passport number on a list. They double check your passport again. Then you wait in another line where they separate you by gender. Our son, they separated off, which was terrifying. Oh, my God. The women and the children are all in this other line, which is, of course, you know, five times as long and super chaotic. And then you're searched by someone who's presumably the same gender as you. They touch everything in your bag and they touch you everywhere and 
Wow. By the time we got on the plane, I was like, I need a Xanax. Like, <laughs> that was a lot. Now I have to fly for 12 hours straight, and I lost my favorite neck pillow. And <sighs> Did you fly out of London? Uh, we flew direct to San Francisco. From Istanbul? Mm-hmm. That was 12 hours? Mm-hmm. Huh. That's fast. Yeah, up and over, kind of. Yeah. Which is funny to fly over Seattle and then have to fly back up to Seattle. Right. Uh, but so it goes. Huh. So it was, so you flew from Turkey, another part to Istanbul. Right. We flew from a, so we drove an hour and a half in the fanciest van I've ever been in in my life. Like one of those, you see it in the movies, like all like reupholstered with like a bar that lights up. It's like 5.30 in the morning. Uh, so we drew, drove an hour to a beautiful airport, also probably built on shadow money in Dalman. And then from Dalman to, to Istanbul, and then Istanbul to San Francisco, San Francisco to Seattle. Oh. Two more things. The food on Turkish Airlines is amazing. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And second, there's this whole tension in Turkey around Western culture. Um, you see American actors everywhere advertising things. Like who? Like uh, Brad Pitt, Jennifer mm, Aniston, uh, Julia Roberts. Oh. Um, I can't think of anybody else right now. But the safety video for Turkish Airways is done by the Lego movie people. Oh. So it's full of Lego characters and like Lego Batman. And it's just so strange because so much of Turkey, you can just feel this tension of like, are we just ourselves or are we immersed in the world around us? Yeah. Um, and then I emailed you about this when we were in Istanbul. We wandered into this fandom shop that sold all American sci-fi and horror fan collectibles stuff. And I was talking to them and you know, I was like, oh, so you have a Comic-Con here? And they were like, we could never have a Comic-Con here. The government would never allow it. Oh, the government? Yeah. The government? Yeah. What, what, what problem would they have with a Comic-Con? What if it was all Muslim comics? <laughs> I mean, there's there's such a thing, you know? I mean, I guess it would have to be. Okay. Uh, but definitely big Western movie stuff. They said they're pretty marginalized in their interest in this. But I learned that... Two of the guys are really into martial arts, and they're super into Star Wars, so we bonded over that for a long time. And then they showed me photos of their cosplay where they go to, like, children's hospital and reenact famous scenes from Star Wars movies dressed up as Star Wars characters. And they don't get prosecuted? And they don't get prosecuted for that. Okay. But I think that we should, in a perfect world, we would raise money for these guys to come to Emerald City Comic Con and do their thing. Oh, yeah. Or just bring a Comic-Con to them. Yeah. <laughs> I think... All Muslim comics. All Muslim, uh, you know, uh, Is there a Muslim superhero? Yeah, I'm sure there are. I, I might have even heard of them. I mean, the comic book world and the superhero world is so... By now... I mean, it's it still has its problems, but there, there's a tradition of... Uh, alternative comics that have been around for a long time and it's and mainstream people trying to do interesting variations on things because you know you're always trying to come up with something new and so i'm positive there's there's a whole slew of muslim uh superheroes and, and whatnot yeah for sure i don't know how sensitive they are or how appreciated they are but yeah that'd be a great movie right you know you got black panther 
Right. Well, I think someone needs to make a documentary of these guys and what they do and then bring them to a Comic-Con. That'd be a good one. If anybody's looking for to make a documentary out there, this is what I'm suggesting. Someone also needs to make a movie of the Croatian soccer team and their leader, whose name I'm spacing, who is under embezzlement or no perjury charges in Croatia and can't come back because the head of Croatian soccer embezzled 4 million euros. And when the guy got in on the stand, he perjured himself and didn't tell the truth about what happened, even though all of Croatia knows that he knows the truth about this guy. So it was like high drama. Like everybody loves this man because he's winning the soccer tournament for him, but he's ultimately betrayed his country by not speaking up against the corrupt Croatian football. But couldn't he claim they were going to kill him or something? I don't know. Anyways, it would make the most amazing movie to follow this guy from being a refugee. His grandfather is killed in Serbia. They flee to Croatia. He's too tiny playing soccer, makes it up to being one of the greatest soccer players in the world wins but he can't come back to his own country because i mean what is like the best story i've ever heard and it's not over yet it's not over yet all croatian music too i think should Mm. be all amazing croatian music i we were that was one of our games you know when you're traveling and you're like bored out of your mind we would re-script the movie over and over again how does it start does it start that he's on the airplane and you don't know if he's going to get off and then flashback right flashback And then who could play him because he's really good at soccer, but he's really short. Um, yeah, this, we entertained ourselves endlessly with this game. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of a game I used to play by myself where I would I would imagine screenplays mm-hmm. of certain... I would just think, oh, you know, what if I made a screenplay of this cultural pocket that I know a lot about, but other people don't really, you know? Like half Asians in Seattle or something, you know, like just what what would the script be like? Yeah, it's a fun game. It is endlessly fun. Yeah, because it's always like really awesome in your mind, you know? It's just like it must be what screenplay writers of, you know, really crappy movies, you know, because they spent so much time on it. They must have been in love with it at some point, Mm -hmm. you know, like the Terminator movies and other kind of movies, you know, they must be, oh, it's going to be, you know, in their head. It just must look so awesome. Well, the scene of him walking up to the plane, getting on the plane in Russia, the rest of the team gets on a different plane. You don't know if he's where he's going to land. You know, we could just see it. It would be epic. Yeah. Right. Reenacting those When goals. does the Transformer enter the picture, though? <laughs> That's what I, wait, I'm confused. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. All right. Uh, unless you have any other thing, any final words about your... You know, uh, only 30% of Americans hold passports. So hmm. let's bump that number up and go go somewhere. Yeah, I, I saw a recent... I don't know why I clicked on it. Jimmy Kimmel was on the streets asking people to... He, he had a... They had a map of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, blank. But, you know, all the borders and everything. And they just grabbed people off the street and they said, name any country. Hmm. And when, when Jimmy Kimmel was describing this, I was like, well, that's dumb. I mean, of course, people know the United States. They can point to, you know, the United States, right? I mean, they live in, you know, because they were all Americans. They, mm-hmm. you know, they had at least American accents, maybe Canadians. I don't know. That uh, surely they'll know one country, you know, right? Mm-hmm. 
several people couldn't identify a single country. Wow. A single country. Mm-hmm. And, and you could tell, like, they were legitimately confused. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that is? Well, the sense I got in Europe was that the, America is so huge that you could never leave here. Right. But if you want, you know, everything in Europe is like two or three hours apart. And and there's this interest to go see it. Right. Whereas I think in the U.S. you can go some pretty interesting places. And the idea that there is something to see outside of us is pretty limited. Where in Europe it's like you know this amazing thing. You know the Alhambra, which is the most visited place in Spain, which I didn't get to, but my family did, is in Spain. Right. And you would like to see the most amazing example of Moorish architecture on the European continent, you will go do that. Well, that's a nice way of looking at Americans, I think. Because it's like, because if you live in, you know, Topeka, Kansas, for example, the amount of, you know, I don't know, world-renowned sites within driving distance of your house is zero, right? I mean, there's there's some interesting things, maybe, kind of. I mean, I've driven through the Midwest and the, the Plain states, and I have to say, like, Wonderful people, you know, there's some wonderful things, but you don't really need to stop if you don't want to. You know, I, I remember I, there was uh, there's a national park in Idaho, uh, moon, moon. It looks like a moonscape. It's because it's volcanic stuff. There was nothing between that and Kansas City, mm. Missouri, like mm-hmm. driving through various different places. You know, um, I mean, there's some things like Mount Rushmore, you know, Devil's Tower. Um, there's some, you know, Grand Canyon obviously is pretty, pretty great, but, um, but what you're saying is like, well, if you live in, uh, you know, Switzerland, not only do you have like wonderful sites in your, in your country, but your country is so small and there's so many other countries that border you with like amazing places there and historical places, uh, and like a, you know, different language, different culture that it's like, it's, it's just a, a train ride away. So I, uh, where, oh, I'm not gonna be able to get the country right, but I met this woman on this ferry and she asked me where I was going and I told her and she goes, oh, well, you have to come to my country because my country has the white ponies and my country has the lake with the monastery in the middle with the bell on top. And like there was this sense and maybe I'm that way about Seattle, but the sense of like really selling what you had, like, well, do you know? you're here and this is fine, but you have to see what I have. And I heard that in Turkey too and in Croatia and in Spain. There's just just this amazing pride without being boastful, but just like you have to experience what I have because what I have is amazing. Mm -hmm. What you have is probably great too, but you you haven't lived until you've had glass bread with tomato and garlic spread all over it. (laughs) It only costs like two euros, so you you need to experience this. Are you that way about Seattle though? I'm not. I can go off. Forever. Oh man, I'm not. I I grew up in Seattle, and I think I've internalized hatred of Seattle. Cause you moved to Seattle in the 90s, mm, 87. Okay, 87. So it's still pretty, pretty considered. Yeah, considered pretty bad. There was no good Mexican food, huh? <laughs> when I moved here, there was no good Mexican food. Yeah, and so I, I mean, I definitely have pride. I love my town, and I love living here, and I will die here and that's that but 
for the first 25, 20 years of me living here, it was nothing to be proud of. You know, it was, we were, we were nothing. We, you know, I'm trying to think of another, we were like Anchorage, you mm-hmm. know, like I, people who live in Anchorage, I'm guessing don't walk around going like, um, uh, you know, when they visit New York city, they can't, you know, if, if they, where are you from Anchorage? You know, it's just like, they just know they're not going to get a lot of, um, impress. They're not going to impress anybody by saying they're from Anchorage. And Seattle was the same way when I was a kid. Now you say you're from Seattle, and it's like, ooh, you know, tech and like, you know. Well, Starbucks was a big – people were like, Seattle, I don't know what's from Seattle. And we would say Starbucks, and they'd be like, oh, Starbucks. <laughs> well, at least in the States, right? Like, you <laughs> no, know. in Europe too. But I mean that's what I'm saying. Like, oh. like in Europe, of course, they probably just lump the United States together. But, you know, you go to L.A. or mm-hmm. you go to – Austin or something, and you say Seattle. They're gonna have they're gonna have some nice associations with it, I think. Um, anyway, uh, so I yeah, I never boast. Plus, like, or I never try to sell Seattle because I just feel like I, I feel like if I tried to sell people and they came, I feel like it wouldn't live up to what I like about it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I would worry that they would get here and they'd be like, well. He certainly likes it, but I don't. I don't think it's that great. Um, yeah, and plus, I also have sort of drilled into my head like, don't have anyone else move here. Right, I have that too. I, I and that comes up when I'm like talking to someone like on a customer helpline, and you know, I'm like, oh, where are you? And they're like, oh, I'm in Poughkeepsie, and I'm like, oh, don't move to Seattle. Yeah, <laughs> that's the next thing I say. It rains here all the time. The traffic is horrible. You won't make any friends. Don't move here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and plus, I think I, in the little bit that I have traveled, I'll occasionally run into someone from New York, mm-hmm. and they'll talk about their city like it's the only fucking city on the oh, planet. Yeah. yeah, when I live there, it's like that. It's that like, New Yorker cartoon is no joke. Like, I mean, everything you need is there. Why yeah. would you go anywhere else? Yeah, I'm in Mexico in this tiny little town, wonderful little town in Mexico. I meet this woman from New York City. And uh, we're oh we're American, you know. We start chatting, da 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 da, and and then you know, there's a certain reciprocalness that you would, I'm sure you engaged in on a lot when you maybe met uh, English speaking people in in Europe, right? Like, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Seattle. Oh, I've heard great things about Seattle. You know, where are you from? Oh, I'm from London. Oh, I've heard great things about London. Like, you don't. There's a certain mutuality mm-hmm. to you try to be balanced, right? If someone else talks crap about their city, then you talk crap about yours. You know, like there's a there's a balance, or I don't know. And this woman, I'll just never forget her. She just she just was just like just she just steamrolled the entire conversation into how wonderful New York was, how you never need to leave it, how there's it has the best of everything. Uh, why would you wh- essentially? I think she might have even said something like. I don't understand why people even live in other cities. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you live in another city when New York has the best of everything? Well, when I, you know, I got trained out there and when I left, people said, you can't leave New York. Your career will be nothing if you leave New York. Like, why would you say that? I don't, that's what they thought. And that's I was so like, weird. The laugh's on you. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no clients anywhere else <laughs> right, right. other you than know, New York professionally, City. Professionally, nothing will ever happen if you don't live in New York. Yeah. It's just so interesting. Um, I mean, New York is legit a great city and has legit a lot of great things for sure. And empirically is, you know, probably a better city than a lot of other cities. So it's, it's not like the person was, you know, 
making stuff up. But at the same time, it's just like, I never want to be that person. So whenever people ask me about Seattle, I'm like, eh, you know, it's, it's okay. It's, yeah, I like it, but you know, it's not for everybody. <laughs> the same with this podcast. Same, actually, I do the same with my podcast. <laughs> I'm on a podcast, but you know, if you don't want to listen, that's up to you. Oh my God. All the time. <laughs> people say, oh, you have a podcast. And I'm like, well, so the first thing I say is, well, podcasting isn't for, po- listening to podcasts <laughs> is, is for everyone because it isn't, right? No. And then I say, and, you know, we, we talk about boring psychology things is what I say. And and they're like, oh, wow, you're really selling it. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, you know. Well, since I've been on this podcast, I listen to podcasts more and appreciate them. Like more. what other podcasts? Uh, well, I listen to The History of Rome, which is an amazing oh, that's right. podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, right now, I'm listening to Katya's new podcast, uh, The Drag Queen Who Just Went Into Rehab. Um, what other podcasts am I listening to? There's a ton. I'll have to get back to you with my list. If I had my phone here, I could pull them all up. Huh. But it actually got me through a lot of like those long travel experiences in Europe. I would just like pop in three and listen to them back to back. Totally. Yeah. Same. I love this. It really passes the time for sure. Great storytelling. I love a good story. I love telling a good story. I love listening to a good story. Yeah. Well, that's our story and that's our podcast. Thanks for joining us out there. (laughs) Please take care of yourself because... Because you got to get back out in the world. You got to get back out there.